0: I'm Moni Jensen
1: and I'm Peter Schechter and today let's talk about a country that only a few people can actually place on the map. Guyana is the teeny English speaking country in South America that is seemingly on the verge of a massive, I mean massive change. And why are we talking about this unusual former British colony which considers itself part of the Caribbean, has less than 800,000 people and has borders with Brazil, Suriname and Venezuela?
0: Because, Peter, in 2015, ExxonMobil discovered one of the largest oil and gas reserves in many decades in what is now known as the LIZA oil field. And this oil field is capable of producing over 700 million barrels a year. That's a million for each Guyanese. So when production begins in earlier mid-2020, Guyana will become one of the top world producers of petroleum, and certainly one of the top in the Western Hemisphere, likely generating an explosion of wealth and economic growth never seen before in this very small country. And the question, and what we're going to discuss today, is can Guyana handle the wealth coming its way, and how it can avoid the oil curse that has haunted other nations in similar situations?
1: Yeah, Muni, I mean, while while this incredible find has put Guyana on the map as a serious world oil player. It's also one of the least prepared countries to really being able to accept and and, and take advantage of this breakthrough. It's, it's politically vulnerable with weak institutions. And even though multilateral players like the World Bank uh, have been in there to help prepare, I'm just not sure they're ready for the waterfall of money that's going to come their way. They've got a tons of work to do and to, to be able to truly benefit from this bonanza the country needs to be reformed almost from the ground up and the list is endless from developing environmental regulations reorganizing its financial system building appropriate infrastructure creating laws that can guarantee the honest management of this explosion of investors and cash flows and development coming its way and so the you know i think the other question is can the country find a way for this boom to benefit the people of this country in a sustainable way and you know other countries have done it before in the developing world i mean it's not you know breaking any uh, major barriers here that haven't been done before but the big question is Can Guyana?
0: I think a lot of it lies on the political climate, which is pretty uncertain. And Guyana could be, as you've mentioned, like many other countries before it, cursed by its own riches. We've talked about the resource curse. And to dive deeper in that, we'll be joined in a few minutes by David Goldwyn, who's a president of Goldwyn Global Strategies. And he's a world-renowned energy expert who's published extensively about energy governance and also advised countries. And we will talk to David about the outlook for Guyana, including his take on the appropriate role for governments and for the private sector in these resource rich countries. But first, a little context. To say this is a huge oil find is definitely an understatement, Peter. And what's right is that some countries have done good stewardship of the riches. The fact is, the record for countries that are, un, you know, not developed, not prepared, is really, really poor. Managing money, dividing the responsibilities of the framework for administering resources, uh, dividing up the responsibility between investors and the public sector, executing plans for sustainable economic development—those are all challenges that any developed country in its shoes will face, and you know, let alone a small, poor country with an unsophisticated system like Guyana. It's especially risky.
1: Yeah and you you mentioned you mentioned politics and so you know Guyana has elections coming up and there are already a whole ton of hot issues and you know Guyana has made some strides in anti-corruption and transparency including publishing oil contract details and money laundering measures but you know challenges are still huge the the current government led by David Granger of the APNU party defeated the pretty corrupt people's progressive party which has held power for 23 years but Granger now faced a no confidence vote last year and was forced to call new elections in March 2020 which is unbelievably exactly the time that the first oil check should be due to arrive in the mail and and you know what it's incredible timing and you know criticism for his party has been less about corruption but rather on how slow uh, his reactions was on reforming the petroleum laws and building adequate regulatory frameworks. So, you know, while one party was corrupt and maybe made decisions quickly, his party is less corrupt, but they don't make decisions. So it's, it's a, it's a tough situation in that country.
0: And to add to things and the potential success of Guyana as an oil and gas powerhouse is the fact that it has a long border with Venezuela, which is, of course, the global poster child for doing things wrong in governance of its oil resources, especially recently. And there's already a border dispute between the two nations. Maduro contested some of Guyana's oil fields and sent gunboats to block ExxonMobil's explorations. There's a lot of noise there on the border, and security challenges that are, you know, that all of Venezuela's neighbors are facing are compounded in Guyana when there's incoming streams of cash that are going to that are expected. Sure,
1: the Guyanese are understandably overjoyed with their soon-to-be riches, but Mooney, this can go both ways. Either Guyana's government gets its act together, takes advice from multilateral organizations who've seen similar scenarios before, and continues to work on transparency and on tackling corruption or the country could become the next victim of corruption, resentment, and instability. And to help us analyze these scenarios, we're joined by David Goldwyn, president of Goldwyn Strategies LLC, and a recognized thought leader, educator, and policy innovator in energy security and extractive industry transparency. For years, I've said to David that he's my energy guru. David served as the U.S. State Department's Special Envoy and Coordinator for International Energy, where he conceived and developed the Shale Gas Initiative and the Energy Governance and Capacity Initiative. He previously served as Assistant Secretary of Energy for International Affairs and as National Security Deputy to U.S. Ambassador of the United Nations, Bill Richardson. Importantly, he advised Statoil, Norway's national energy company, now known as Equinor, one of the world's most successful and transparent stewards of energy. David is published everywhere on topics related to energy security and transparency. David, welcome to Altamar. Delighted to be here. So can you just start, David, Guyana is a teeny country, but it's about to be the newest petro state. But I mean, it's actually gonna be, it's more than just a petro state. It's like a little petro giant. So, can you just give us a sense of like the size of the find and just how big is it really and what? Give us a context here. So in absolute terms, um,
2: so far, Guyana's had 14 discoveries, and their reserves are estimated at about 6 billion barrels. So in terms of of absolute quantities, that wouldn't crack the top 20 of oil producers. Venezuela has 300 billion barrels. But on a per capita basis, it's enormous, because Guyana has 800,000 people. Today, they have the per capita income of Tonga, but by 2024, they'll have the per capita income of Brazil, so it's it's a big deal, and frankly, they're just at the front end of the uh, of the exploration phase. Uh, the other the other metric to keep an eye on is money. So they're going to have one hundred twenty thousand barrels of production, probably starting in March. Um, they're going to get about three hundred million dollars uh, a year. But by twenty twenty four, when production ramps up to about six hundred thousand barrels a day, it's going to be five billion a year. That's a big jump. So absolute terms. You know, it's a very significant, probably the biggest find that the industry has had in years. But what's really matters is you know, what it means for Guyana.
0: It seems like it's vulnerable, David, a country that's a poor former colony with a kind of weak government. It can either thrive or collapse under this massive oil hurricane. What is the homework that the Guyanese have to do in this short, short time to prepare when, for when the oil checks really start pouring in?
2: Well, Mooney, you've hit on really the, you know, the, the key risk there. And I would say Guyana really is a country, uh, at risk, you know, on the positive side, they have done a lot of their homework. Um, in fact, uh, Peter mentioned earlier an energy governance program. I started at the state department nine years ago. Um, Guyana was one of the first countries we identified. So they've had eight years of advice on revenue management and resource management from the state department, enormous help from the world bank, the uh, international monetary fund, the inter-American development bank, uh, you know, NGRI, the, you know, the National uh, Resource Institute. So they've gotten a lot of advice. They've thought about having a sovereign wealth fund. They've thought about a public accountability board. They've thought about an, a petroleum law, but they haven't implemented it yet. And that's really the challenge not is abuse. they've they, um, they have established the sovereign wealth fund, but not staffed it. One house has passed the petroleum bill, but it hasn't become law. They have a public accountability board, but they haven't, staffed it. and I'm you know i'm I'm sympathetic because it's a small country. It's a very thin bench in the government. And so there aren't a lot of people. But the problem is, you know, the money will come, probably not enormous amounts in March, but it's starting to come fast and they haven't implemented yet. and uh, And that's the real risk.
0: There are elections coming up, which the government had to reluctantly call exactly or just about the time in twenty twenty when the oil money is going to be pouring in how do you protect a government like this from corruption and then what is your assessment of the current government which seems to have implemented transparency programs and is pretty high marks for uh not being corrupt but also very low marks for being very not ineffective
2: yes you've you've really hit the hit the nail on the head i I, let me start with the with the government i mean uh uh President Granger himself, you know, is, uh, David Granger is, um, is, you know, a person of very high integrity and known, to be honest. Guyana ranks 37 on a scale of 100 uh, for corruption under Transparency International's um, uh, rankings. So, the, you know, the, an, an honest government that has been slow to make decisions. Um, and it's also been an inclusive government. Um, Guyana has sort of an Afro-Guyanese and an Indo-Guyanese you know, population. The Indo-Guyanese ran the government for many, many years. There were accusations of corruption, but they also weren't very inclusive. This government has been very inclusive. Um, but, but also slow to make decisions. So the way you prevent corruption you know, in, in these kinds of countries is through institutions. Um, uh, Mexico's reform uh, recently is an example of how you do it. You have disclosure of contracts, you have disclosure of revenues, you publish where the money goes, um, you, have, um, you, you, you decide in advance what's going to go into a savings fund and what's going to go into the budget. Um, you do things like uh, join the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which Guyana has done. Um, and you have public accountability. Um, so that's, those, those are the, that's the skeleton uh, of what you do. But then you have to populate all of those institutions with people. And you have to have a free press that will hold them to account. And you have to have informed and empowered citizens. So again, with, with Guyana, they, you know, they've, they've got the framework on paper of a system that would provide accountability, but they
1: haven't implemented it yet. I mean, I don't want to be a pessimist, but I mean, you've, you've spoken about the thin bench that they have, I mean, how does a country with so many few peoples with a, that has suffered a brain drain over time, the diaspora is really, a lot of the educated Guyanese have left, how does a country then run such a complicated system? Well, you do it in
2: phases. I think first you have to, once you get the money, you have to pay public officials well so that people want to work for the government. Um, you have to welcome back your, your expats um, and appeal to their patriotism to, to participate in the government. Um, you have to have education and training programs um, as early as you can to teach people how to be effective bureaucrats. But I think the lesson of Botswana in its early days and other countries is that you're probably going to outsource. You're probably going to go to third-party organizations to come in and help you run accounting, to help you run finance. You're going to get external advisors, um, and that can provide some frictions because the foreigner is getting paid more than, than the locals, and that's never very popular. But, but generally what you have to do is you have to procure that expertise while you build your own. And if you don't, um, then the risk is that
1: um, you make bad decisions and you squander that money early. I know you've thought a lot about the the next question I'm going to ask you because we've talked so far about the role of the government, and the question now is what's the role of the foreign investor? And in the case of Guyana, Exxon really has been the main company that has done a lot of the oil exploration and has found these uh, has found these new deposits. So, I guess what's the role of a you know mega company like Exxon in really trying to help the country be more responsible with its oil revenues?
2: Well, there's been you know, a lot of thought, a lot of study about what the role of foreign investors should be in countries. And it's very tempting for governments to go to them you know, to build infrastructure and to do things because they're organized, they do project management, they've got skills. But my own view is that's a mistake. Um, that the number one thing that companies need to do is to produce what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to strike a fair bargain with the country so that when prices are low they don't leave and when prices are high the company the country rather benefits as well as the as the company um i think companies really need to for the most part stay in their lane You can uh, there's this concept of shared value you can share value for example if you're going to build an airport because you have to bring your own material in it should be available to everyone if you're going to build telecommunications and electricity then you can expand you should expand that to the the neighborhood but when they make their social investments and i think exxon is actually doing this in in guyana do things like build a vocational school which will train people who you will hire but who can also get jobs elsewhere Um, but when Countries start to learn, lean on these companies to do other things, like in Iraq to build the water system. It's a risk if the company does it. You haven't had an auction or a bid. Did you get a fair price? Is it being? It's being. You know, or how do you pay for it? If you pay for it, it what be called cost oil. So the company is paying itself. Well, then when you actually get to doing that, the country's like, where's the money? Oh, we're paying for the electricity system you had us build. So it's risky for the country. It's risky for the company. And this is a place where I think it's the responsibility of supporting governments and international financial institutions to help the country figure out how to get its infrastructure and let the company do what
1: it was brought in for, which is to make the money. Let me ask you a a, a sort of multi-headed question, which is a little bit like, tell us which countries have really done this well, which countries have taken immense oil resources and both used them for social good, you know, kept in a, uh, the famous rainy day fund for the future. I mean, which countries have done well? And I know that Norway, the, you know, a, a company that a country and a company that you advise is the gold standard, but So you can tell us why it's the gold standard, but I'm also interested in what developing nations have done it well. Sure. Well, let's broaden that out a little bit.
2: (coughs) Excuse me. Um, Let's broaden that out a little bit uh, for countries that have produced resources. So you could look at um, Chile with copper, uh, Canada with oil, Botswana with uh, diamonds and, and other minerals, and those are all countries which have done well with their resources. But some of those, like Norway, and to some extent Chile, were somewhat industrialized countries to begin with. So they had an educated workforce. They were used to running an industry. Um, Botswana was different. Uh, Botswana didn't have that experience. uh, And they had a tribal culture which respected property rights, which was very inclusive. uh, And they had enlightened leadership. You know, they had a head of the country at the time that they discovered all this wealth. um, And all of the wealth was in his province. And he established a system which shared it with the whole country. And, uh, you know, so I I think the enlightened governance is probably the single factor that makes the biggest difference. The two other big baskets are macroeconomic management and political management. So uh, on macroeconomic management, the resource curse is essentially the overvaluation of the exchange rate and basically the atrophy of all the other industries which employ people, including uh, agriculture. So actually, there was a study by the OECD that said for every uh, 10% increase in oil share, countries suffered a 7% decrease in growth. A decrease in growth, despite so, that. Some, well. It's unbelievable. And so, you know, the lessons there are don't spend all the money. So a fiscal rule says a certain amount of money will go into the budget and the rest will go into a fund. That fund could be for future generations. It could be for pensions. It could be for infrastructure. Uh, it could be just for a future generation. But that's that's job one. Accountability is job two, anti-corruption is job three, and if you do that, and Guyana is actually doing this, they're going to of the three hundred million they're going to get in their first year, a hundred million is going into the budget, two hundred million is going to go into this into this fund, um, so that can keep you from destroying all the other employment uh, generating industries. But the other part is the political part, and that's harder because. There's this concept of the rentier state, which is that uh, the government owns the resource. A foreign party pays the government. So you don't need the taxpayer anymore. You don't really even have taxpayers. And the temptation is to give everyone everything for free. And so the government... Doesn't need the citizens anymore. It's got another source of income, and so that's where you get this tilt to autocracy, or sometimes to fighting wars with your your neighbors, and where you get the corruption because the government is where all the money is. So everybody wants to be in the government and get their share. Beating that is hard. Um, you know, so Norway has done that essentially by you know by by making sure that the money doesn't stay in the government, or at least it's putting it in the in the fund, um, but. Uh, but that really takes leaders who are committed to growing the country, uh, and that's
1: a little bit rare. And I think that's that's what's going to make the biggest difference for Guyana. There, there's been there's been some experimentation at the World Bank with some NGOs, particularly in Africa, on basically countries that have these sudden resources, simply handing over certain amounts of cash to every citizen in the country and let the citizen decide how best to spend that money. Is that something that you feel is is a workable solution in general for these suddenly rich countries? I think a direct transfer is part of the solution. Of course, in our own country, we have Alaska,
2: which has, you know, and Alaskan citizens have gotten a direct payment for years. I think in a, in a developing country, some of the money needs to go for development. You have to build an education system. You have to build an electricity system, transportation. If you don't invest in the bones of uh, an economy, you can't diversify. Uh, but if you give some of that money to citizens, then you deal with the accountability piece. The IMF did a study on this in Iraq, which is where they thought it would be... a a great way to do it but part of the problem was they actually didn't have a system to either make those payments or to collect the taxes back. So, um I think it's probably a little bit of each.
0: You mentioned the neighborhood. Guyana borders Brazil, Suriname and Venezuela and this last country has basically created a border dispute about the oil. How do you think Guyana can handle being in a in a busy oil neighborhood and still manage to thrive?
2: Well, today it has a lot of friends. Um, so I think by my sort of respecting international arbitration and international resolution of that dispute, they have the rule of law on their sides with U.S. investors and now probably seven or eight other investors from other countries. Um, they have um, a lot of supporters. And the fact that Venezuela essentially is not really competent to conduct a naval battle with its neighbor, um, but they have created some, some friction. So I think there's uh, a lot of forces arrayed to support Guyana and a lot that are, have their eyes on Venezuela right now. So I think they're going to be fine, but it is, you know, it is a source of friction. Um, I think the, you know, the, the temptation you know, over time is as Guyana becomes wealthy, um, whether you start to see migration issues or other issues put pressure on the country.
0: Many people have said that. This new finding and this new, very thriving Guyana is going to change the face of the oil, the world of oil in the Western Hemisphere. What does the structure of the worldwide oil market look like to you in a few years?
2: In my view, the Guyana find is not a market moving um, event. You know, we have you know, I think the I don't know what the global consumption is today, but it's sort of somewhere around 90 million barrels a day. Um, So it's an enormous market, and even if it produces 600,000 barrels a day, which puts it in the category of sort of of Ecuador or something, it's probably replacing declines in other areas or countries that we have under sanctions. So it's a very important step in the diversification of the oil market to have a new producer, Um, but it's not not a market moving event.
0: So just a Guyana and maybe a regional moving event.
2: It is. I mean, it's enormous for Guyana um, because they really do have the opportunity five billion a year in a in a. Country of of eight hundred thousand um, to completely transform the country, and to and they have a national development plan. It's uh, it's a uh, they call it the uh, the green state development plan. So they're looking at sustainable forestry and agriculture and ecotourism and building electricity grid. So it could be tremendous. So it's huge for them, uh, and it will be important
1: for for the neighborhood. I, I mean, I also I was speaking to a Brazilian friend the other day who told me that. Roraima, the most northern state of Brazil, is off the grid in Brazil. It, it's not connected to the national grid. It pulls in from Belém, which is about 1,500 kilometers away. But Georgetown is only 600 kilometers away. And so the, the Brazilians are super interested in what's happening in, in Guyana because they think they can pull in electricity and, and, uh, and perhaps even, you know, a pipeline.
2: And, you know, that's a possibility and the, you know, the, the steps that have to be taken for that to happen, Guyana needs to have a power purchase agreement. They need to have a plant. They need to have build transmission. They need to go through an awful lot of territory in order to, um, you know, to put that transmission in. And those are the things where you're going to need enlightened leadership because who owns that land? Do they want that transmission line? Do they want that pipeline? Is there a credit worthy customer on the other side of it and those are all things which governments have to work out um, with their own citizens and with their neighbors and that's where you look at all the things that guyana has to do over the next few years and it's a big lift and do they want to do it i think absolutely do they have the talent to do it not
1: yet do they have the will to do it let's see what happens in the next election let me just Pull right from there, and before you leave, ask you—you know—what's your vision for Guyana five, ten years down the road? I mean, what do you? What would you hope to see happen?
2: Well, let's see. Let's put um. Let's put some numbers on the time frame. So, in five years, they're going to start to get those five billion dollar a year checks. In ten years, they will have had twenty-five billion. So my hope for Guyana is at that point they've got a national electricity grid, they have roads, they have schools uh, and universities to train people on on not only petroleum management but forestry management, um, that they have had five to eight years of sort of world-class support and advice, um, that they have uh, citizens you know, uh, expats who have come back home to take leadership roles and to and to join things, and they um, they have become the model of South America. Um, but what do I think will happen? I think the next five years will be bumpy. Uh, the money will not have arrived. The ramp up will be slow, um, and there'll be another political cycle. So whoever is in power now will not necessarily who's going to be in power when the five billion a year check arrives, um, and then we'll we'll see. You know, we've talked a lot about about Norway, but um, you know, Norway has a model of you know six or seven different institutions: one for safety, one for management, one for policy. They've got a lot of people. Guyana is going to need a is going to have, I think, essentially a, a small, tight team of people making decisions in a timely way. They're not there yet. If they can do that. I think they'll be a big success. If not, in five years or in 10 years, and I hope this is not the case, we'll be talking about how hard it is for countries with resource wealth to turn that into into real prosperity. David Goldwyn,
1: thank you for sitting down with us today on Altamar. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: You know, listening to David, I'm encouraged. In the beginning, I was thinking Guyana was like destined for failure and corruption and just political upheaval. But really, they've been preparing longer than I expected of nine years of preparation of building the regulatory framework. It looks like they're not as, you know, in a state of improvisation as I had previously thought.
1: Muni, I'm glad that you are the optimist for once. Um, yeah, not and, fair. And, I'm always
0: an optimist. Not-
1: I'm definitely not an optimist on this issue. I mean, I, they've been, as for exactly the same reasons, David said that they've been at this for 10 years. They don't have, you know, they've got some basic outlines of what a law might look like, but whoever is going to run the regulatory agencies not only doesn't have staff, they don't have offices. I mean, the thing looks like it's, so behind schedule, and I, you know, I think he elegantly said that it's going to be a bumpy ride, and yeah, I think it's it's it will be many many years before Guyana gets its act in shape. You know, my my worry is much more about Venezuela and its effects on Guyana. I mean, I you know. It's been happening for centuries and centuries. When countries are in dire problems, they go seek a foreign intervention and a foreign war to galvanize the population. And this is almost too good to be true.
0: The finding is too good to be true, and it's certainly tricky, but I do believe that the fact that the Venezuela issue elevates Guyana into the international kind of arena makes people pay attention and makes institutions pay attention and help them build the groundwork. The truth is, and this is where I do agree with you, is until the cash comes flowing, nobody's going to really know how prepared Guyana really is.
1: Right. And I, and I also suppose that, you know, even Maduro doesn't have the guts to go after a country where Exxon... America's largest company has put in so much money. So with that, thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next time.